Good morning, everyone. May I ask you, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 20. We're going to be dealing with verses 27 through, through uh, 38, and probably we'll go a little farther than that into 39 and 40 as well. So Luke, uh, chapter 20. I have been saying to you for the longest time that Jesus is traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem after the transfiguration where he met with Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah kind of uh, seemed like it was the catalyst for Jesus to begin to go to the cross. So whatever was said in the mountain, Mount Hermon, or the mountain of transfiguration, that's, it was the key for Jesus to know that he was to start traveling south toward Jerusalem. He did not want to go through the city of the Samaritans. So as he left Galilee and probably just north of Samaria, he cut to the east of the Jordan River and he began to travel south on the eastern side of the Jordan River and as he comes to the area of Judea is when he cuts west at that point, crosses the Jordan River again, and enters into the area of Judea. And the first city he encounters is the city of Jericho. And two things take place in the city of Jericho, which I didn't have a chance to preach on. I would have loved to, but, but we didn't. One is that he meets, as he enters the city of Jericho, he meets a, a blind man that the other Gospels call Bartimaeus, or the son of Timaeus. And as he's about to enter the city, uh, Bartimaeus is by the door or the gate of the city, and he cries out for mercy and ask Jesus to heal him because he's blind. Jesus stops, and his whole entourage that is going with him, the disciples, the crowd, the multitude that is traveling toward Jerusalem, they all stop. Jesus asks that these men be brought to him, and he says, what do you want? And Bartimaeus says, Lord, I want to see. And then he, he uh, heals him. He heals Bartimaeus. He continues cutting through the city of Jericho. And somewhere in the middle of the city of Jericho, the people of Jericho have created um, uh, a bunch, bunch of people on the streets so that everybody wants to see this man who everybody is calling the Christ, the Messiah, the great teacher, the prophet of God. Whatever names they have been given, Jesus' fame has begun to spread a great deal. And so people are crowding the streets on each side of the street. They want to see this man. They haven't seen him before. Among them, there is a, a, a man who the scripture tells us that he's very short of stature. He's either a little person or he just simply is a man that is shorter than, than most people. 
And he also wants to get to see Jesus. And unable to see over the heads of the people that are taller than him in the crowd, he is ingenious, and so he finds a tree, and he climbs up a tree and hangs on to a branch, I suppose, or the trunk of the, of the tree, and he wants to see this Jesus that is traveling by. And as Jesus, and I, I, I find it interesting because... What Jesus says is, Zacchaeus was his name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. And as I look at it, it reminds me that Jesus climbed on a tree. And so when I, when I look at the situation with Zacchaeus, had I been able to preach on it, I, I wanted to make a point to you that the substitution that takes place with Zacchaeus is what happens to us as well. Because as Jesus comes where Zacchaeus is, near the tree or out in the tree, he just stops and he looks at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to have supper with you today. He invites himself. And Zacchaeus comes down, takes him to the house, and a transformation takes place in the life of Zacchaeus. A huge transformation, and you can see it by what he says. He says, Lord, I will give to the poor half of everything I own. And if I have stolen from anybody anything, I will return it tenfold or a hundredfold. Now, Zacchaeus knew his sins, and he knew exactly, he knew exactly what, what issues he had in his life. And he was either not caring for the poor and certainly stealing from other people. So immediately there is a change in his life, a conversion, a, trans, a transference that occurs, a transformation that takes place in, in the name of Zacchaeus, in, in the person of Zacchaeus. And as Jesus leaves Jericho, he goes up the mountain. It's a, a big ascending mountain, the mountain uh, there that we know the mountain as Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives. Part of that mountain ridge there is where the Mount of Olives is, where Jesus ascended to, to heaven. And as he goes by Bethany, most likely is when he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And as he continues uh, on the ridge of these mountains, he comes to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he goes down that mountain ridge into what's called the Kidron Valley. And as he goes up, the temple is right there. He's entering the city of Jerusalem as he ascends to the hills of Zion, the mountain of Zion. He's ascending, and that's when he tells his disciples to get a donkey. And he sits on a donkey, and he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which tells you right away that Passover is at hand. Not only Passover, but the last week of the life of Jesus. Jesus is certainly headed to the cross. He's headed to the cross to be the Lamb of God. He's headed to the cross to take away the sins of the world, to lay them upon his shoulder, and to die for all who have sinned and come short to the glory of God, and are in need of redemption and salvation and forgiveness. Jesus is headed to the cross. 
As he enters the city, he goes straight to the temple. He casts out the people that were selling uh, stuff and, and, and changing money and, and, and all kinds of things. And he begins to teach in the temple. So we're talking possibly Tuesday, Wednesday, anywhere from Tuesday to Wednesday, Thursday of Holy Week. And as he's teaching in the temple, the religious leaders come at him to attack him, to, to try and trip him, to try and put before him all kinds of obstacles, to question him, to embarrass him if they can. And the first group that comes, it is told in the Scripture that it is the, the chief priests and the scribes. And they come to Jesus to question, by what authority do you do this? By what authority did you throw out of the temple the people that were selling ox and were selling sheep and were selling doves and were doing business in the temple? By what authority are you teaching in our temple, the temple of God? Who are you? And basically Jesus responds by saying, by what authority did John the Baptist preach? And of course they didn't want to answer that question. So he doesn't answer their question of his authority. But upon them leaving, the Pharisees come over, and the Pharisees begin to try and trip him too, because they come with the Herodians, and they ask that famous question, uh, is it proper to pay taxes to Caesar? And, and they, if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, then the Herodians are there, and, uh, and they, he could be considered creating a rebellion against the Romans and telling the Jews, don't pay your taxes anymore. If he says pay your taxes, then he's embarrassed with the Jews because paying the taxes was what was keeping the Roman legions in place, and it was a betrayal of, of God. So Jesus' response is, show me the coin. They bring him a coin. He says, whose image is this? Caesar. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God. So they can't trap him. So the Pharisees go away, and here comes the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees believe that when you die... That's it. You get buried, your body uh, goes to dust, and life is over, and there is no life after death, and there's no resurrection, there's no hell, there's no paradise, there is nothing. You just die, and you're gone, and that's it, kaputs. That's a Hebrew term. <laughs> and and they, come, they come to Jesus, but they come... Their intentions are to mock Jesus. And in the mocking, they want to trip him up. And they come saying, Moses, the great teacher and redeemer of Israel, in the Torah, he gave us a law. Deuteronomy 25. It was a law that said that, and you can go to it, to Deuteronomy 25, uh, I think it's verse 5 and, and following, but it is a law that has to do with continuing the family line of a brother. 
It had to do with marriage. In other words, God had given this law to Moses, and he, and he gave it to the people, which basically said, if a, bro, if a man marries a woman, and they don't have children, and he dies, it is the duty of the next brother in line to marry that same woman so that they can have children whom their name they will name in the name of the brother that died. Therefore, the lineage, the family lineage of the brother is not lost. That's the intention of the law, to maintain the family line of a dead brother. So the law said you marry uh, your sister-in-law, the widow, and you have children, you name it, you know, the, the name and last name and so on of your brother. And then you can go on and, and have your family and your own lineage later on with the same wife. That's the law, that's the intention of it. The maintaining the, the lineage of a family. It also had to do with property, properties and what belonged to that man and what belonged to that family and how that get transferred over to his children. The Sadducees come claiming the authority of Moses. But they claim, they come trying to mock Jesus. And here's what it sounds like and how it plays in my mind. They come to Jesus probably with a big smile, mischievous, Smart, but mischievous. Teacher, we've got a parable for you. You're always telling us about parables. Well, we can tell parables too. So we have a parable for you, teacher. Moses said, you know, that the law about the marriage of the, of the sister-in-law. He says, well, there is this guy who marries this woman, he doesn't have children and he dies. The next brother marries her, they don't have children either, so they, he dies. Now they have two family lineages to, to maintain. The third brother comes, and the fourth brother, and the fifth brother, and the sixth brother, eventually they all die, Lord, and the woman dies too without children. In heaven, if you believe in the resurrection... Whose wife is she going to be? Whose wife is she going to be? She's married all six guys. Who's going to claim her as wife? That's the, the mocking. Actually using the word of God to create mocking of this situation. Jesus' response is this, which I think it's important to us. He says, in this life, in this life, marriage is important. Not everyone is called to be married, and not everyone is married. But marriage has a place and an importance in this life. 
One of the importances of marriage for which God created a man and a woman and brought them together and they became one family, one of the importances of it is the procreation of children. You get married in order to have children because that way you maintain the continuation of the human race. The idea of procreation is the continuation of, of, of the human race. The more children we have and some die and so on, you continue the human race for years and years and centuries and centuries. One of the reasons for marriage is to bring children into the world that continue the lineage of the family and the human race. That's one of the reasons for marriage. The second reason for marriage, I believe in my heart, is for mutual enjoyment. I think God created sex. We didn't invent it. He created us sexual beings. He created us male and female, and He created us to be able to enjoy each other. And there's nothing wrong within marriage... To enjoy one another physically. That, the scriptures teach us that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So second reason for, for marriage is that you would enjoy the intimacy. And what happens when you are intimate with your husband. What you share with that person. What you give into that intimacy is very important. It's, it's a precious gift that we give to one another. The third thing about marriage is companionship. It's companionship. Now, some people say, well, I don't need it. Well, let me tell you, I need it. And if I have been called to be married, and again, I say not everyone is married, and not everyone is called to be married. That's a decision you have to make. But companionship is part of that marriage. The idea of being able to wake up with somebody and have somebody there with you that, that shares with you your, your, your happiest moment, your sad moments, your, your concerns, your, your questioning of, of life, uh, the struggles. To have that companion near you, it's a great part and an important part of marriage. And the fourth thing about marriage is that we get married for mutual help. For mutual help. I mean, God created Eve as a help to Adam. But I don't think it's just a help as you would say, well, she's my servant. That's why she's there to help me. I don't think so. I think it's the issue of completeness. I think my wife completes me. I think I complete her. I think there's that sense in which in marriage, you see, I read a book a while back that says most people think that marriage is to make you happy. He said in the book, marriage is to make you holy. Because nobody can correct you more than your wife or your husband. In fact, every relationship makes you holy. You cannot be in a relationship with a friend or anybody without somehow you learning what is proper and not proper in a relationship. And if you have a, an intimate relationship where they'll tell you, Jose, don't do that. 
Or Jose, the way you said that came out wrong. Or Jose, that was right. You should do more of that. Marriage and relationship complete us and make us holy. It, it, it helps us change and become everything we would not become if we didn't have anyone correcting us, even a great friend. So relationships tend to make us holier, tend to transform us. The closer we are, the closer we relate to each other. So in marriage, which is even more intimate than a friendship, you have that idea of completing one another, of adding to one another, of adding something that you would not have besides being married. So Jesus says that in this life, marriage is important. Therefore, the question of the, of the Sadducees and the statement that God gave, or the law that God gave to Moses, is related for this life alone. In this life, there is marriage. But then he says, but in the life to come... In the life to come, and upon those who are accounted worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Those who are accounted worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead. In that age, in that resurrection life, there will be no need of marriage. So the question they're asking is mute. She's not going to be any of the six men's wife. Because in the heavens, there is no need for marriage as we know it on earth, because there is no need for continuing the race. Because you are there in eternal life. You live forever. You are always going to be alive in the presence of the Lord. There is no dying, therefore no need for marriage, procreation, or any of those other things. So Jesus says, in the life to come, we will be like angels. Now, somebody said to me the other day, Father Jose, is it true that when we die, we're going to become angels? No, we're not going to become angels. Angels are angels, and redeemed children of God are redeemed children of God. We were not created the same, and we will never be the same. But we will be like the angels who don't need procreation. We will be like the angels and those that live in heaven that will not need marriage or sex or any of those other things because they will be unnecessary for the purpose for which God created it. So Jesus, by answering that question, is basically muting them, shutting them up. Because clearly what he's saying is, you know nothing about what you're talking about. You know nothing about heaven. You've never been in heaven. I came from heaven. I can tell you how it is in the afterlife. But then he does something that is very important to shut them out farther. He says to them, you claim that Moses gave that law? He says, well, I'm going to tell you another thing that Moses did. When God was speaking to Moses... At the burning bush. And Moses said to God, Who 
shall I send sent me? Whom shall I say? Whom should I say that sent me? The voice from the burning bush, the voice of God from the burning bush said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them, I am sent you. Jesus basically saying this, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they lived on this earth. He's not saying, I was their God. He's saying, I am their God. Right there, at that moment, at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there's a number of places in Scripture, in the Old Testament, where the resurrection is taught. Job was read today, but there are others, many others. Jesus chooses that one. I am the God of Abraham, which means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be alive at that moment in the heavenly realm, in the afterlife, and God is still their God. He was their God when they lived, and He's still their God. So basically Jesus is saying Moses himself taught the resurrection of the dead and life after death. And he claims Moses is that he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says in verse 39 and 40, if you look at it with me, in verse 39 and 40, it says, Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. And after that, they dare not question him any longer. They did not dare question him any longer. Now, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Amen? Amen. The Sadducees didn't have the advantage that we have. Jesus hadn't died yet, and Jesus hadn't risen from the dead yet. We know the resurrection of the dead. Because Jesus proved it in his own life. They didn't have that. Okay? Now, the question that's important to us, how can we ensure our resurrection from the dead? How can you be sure? Because a lot of people in this life live afraid of dying. While the believer sees death only as a passage into the presence of Almighty God. Because we know the promises of God, and we know what God has said about life after death. How can you ensure that you will live into eternity in the presence of the Father? How will you ensure that you are one of those accounted worthy of the resurrection? And I have to say to you that there's no other way except Jesus Christ. We live this life because our parents decided to give us this life. But we can only enter the life eternal because God decides to give us that life. 
Nothing that we do in this life, nor none of us is good enough that we can attain to it. We attain to it by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on a cross. In just a few days after this encounter in the temple, Jesus is going to climb on a tree and he's going to allow himself to be nailed so that your sins are put upon him. So that your sins are accounted to him while his righteousness is accounted toward you. There is a transference that takes place like what happened with Zacchaeus. His was physical. You climb down so I can climb up. With this one is different. I will take your sins so that you can take my life eternal. My resurrection. The only way that you and I or anyone can attain to the resurrection of the dead is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other, there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus, and that through the cross. It is at the cross of Jesus that your sins and my sins are removed. It's not when you believe. It's when Jesus died and said, it is finished. It is complete. It is done. Father, I accomplished it. The sins of the world are paid for. And when you come to faith in Jesus, life eternal begins for you at that very moment. Now, there's another thing I want to say to you, which I think is very important, at least to me. Don't live your life looking to the end of it. Even though you have the assurance of life eternal, I think life eternal begins right here, right now. I believe that the life God has for us, Jesus makes it possible through his death right here and right now. In other words, I don't have to wait to die to be with the Lord. I can be with the Lord right here, right now. In fact, part of what God wants us is He wants us to live this life, which is once in a lifetime, once and forever. You don't get to do it again. He wants us to live this life to the fullest. He wants us to give us abundant life here in the now. It's not about telling people, oh, don't, you know, the, at the end of your life. It's the fact that there are people living chaotic lives right now. Because they don't know the transfer, the, the change that having Jesus in your heart can do for you in this life. This life can be glorious. This life can be amazing. This life can be joyful. This life can be full. This life can be peaceful. This life can be everything God, God wanted it to be. And that sometimes we make it chaotic. When Jesus comes into our lives, when we invite Jesus to come into our lives, our lives change here. We get to enjoy it here. We don't have to live in fear any longer of death or, or any accusation or any shame or anything that this life may have given us. When Jesus comes into your life, this life becomes glorious. Amen. Don't waste it. Live with Jesus now. Let him take control now. The peace he will bring to you, to your family. 
The things He will do in you, you won't ever live again looking back to see who's behind you. Because you will have the certainty that God is with you no matter what this world says. This life, I know He transforms lives for now. Not for when we get into heaven. Heaven is guaranteed because of Jesus Christ. But when we give Jesus the lordship of our lives, here and now, your families will change. Your attitudes will change. The way you live will change. The peace in your heart will be fantastic. The joy in your soul will be amazing. And you will see this life greater than the chaos that sometimes we allow it to come. In other words, eternal life is what Jesus wants to give us now. From this day on forever into eternity. We receive that through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And you can be assured that the resurrection of the dead is real. And it's powerful. And it's eternal. And then Jesus rose from the dead, preceded us to heaven, and is seated now at the right hand of the Father, waiting for you and for me. And I think one day he will introduce us to the Father and say, Father, here's Jose. I know this guy. I know him. I died for him. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes. But don't waste this life looking to the life to come. Enjoy this life to the fullest. Live it to the Lord. Glorify God in your life. Obey Him and bring others to know this life that can be peaceful here and now. You can enjoy abundant life today. Amen.